A newspaper columnist and minister, George Crane, tells of a wife who came into his office full of hatred towards her husband. I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has me. Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. Go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. After you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That will really hurt him. With revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, Beautiful, beautiful, will he ever be surprised. And she did it with enthusiasm, acting as if. For two months, she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. When she didn't return, Dr. Crane called. Are you ready now to go through with the divorce? Divorce, she explained. Never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise as often repeated deeds. You see, agape love, a sacrificial love that we've been talking about, is a love of the will, not of the emotion. Looking out for the other's good. The problem for most of us is we want the feeling before we want to do. And it's the other way around when it comes to God. There's a, there's a willful choice that needs to be made if we are to live agape love out. We are not waiting for a feeling. Contrary to popular opinion, that is not the starting point for agape love. Agape love starts in the will and the mind of a person. It does not start with the emotion. So as we continue this series and as we wrap up here in the coming weeks... I want us to kind of go over a few things that we've already discussed and, 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 and go through a few more this morning. We've talked about uh, a few descriptions of divine love so far. Patient with others. That's the first one. Useful to others. Love is not jealous. Love does not show off. Is not proud. Is not rude. Is not self-focused. Not easily angered. Does not keep score. And today we're going to look at some of these broken by injustice, thrilled with the truth, suppresses others' flaws, believes the best, stands assured, and does not give up. We're going to start off with broken by injustice in verse number six. It says, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love hurts when others are wronged and seeks justice to prevail. This is not a Democrat or Republican thing, folks. Love seeks to see the truth in what's going on and seeks that justice be done. Your heart should break when children are neglected. It should break when children are neglected in a home. When abusers get away with abuse, something should swell up in you to oppose that. Because love calls for those things. So many that are unjustly punished, your heart should break for. You see, folks, the problem with us many times when it comes to love is we define love based on our own experience many times, rather than God's justice that is revealed in his word. 
Do you realize that many times your economic status will determine what you think of others that are in a different economic status? You see, those that are well off tend to look down at those that are not so well off. And those that are not so well off tend to look down on those that are much better off. You see, we both have a totally different perspective of one another. And the reason we have that different perspective is because we're basing a lot of our life's decisions and choices on our experiences in the past. And many times what would be an injustice according to the word of God is not an injustice to us because we have never gone through those things. Folks, we need to be very careful that we are not reading our bias into the word of God but letting the Bible determine our bias. It's not the other way around. Love seeks justice from God's word, not from what it wants God's word to say. Love is defined by God, especially agape love that we've been talking about. It's a divine love. And this love seeks justice on God's terms, not ours. You do realize that when you and I wrong somebody, there are sometimes consequences for those wrongs. Love seeks justice in the sense that there is a proper, proper response to the injustice that's been caused. There are many things in our history that we can't necessarily be proud of as Americans. There are many things that were done in the name of Christ that were contrary to what Jesus would have ever recommended. And sadly, what happens is as we move further and further away from those past historical events that we many times look back in disgust, we don't pay attention to things that are going on today. You see, everybody is a part of history. What you live today, someone lived years ago. And what we decide as injustice or justice today as believers will be looked back on historically later on. You see, most people that were living around the time of slavery didn't think it was as big of a deal. But now we look back and we push that away and say, that's terrible. I can't believe we lived in that kind of environment. Folks, we have things going on today in modern America that we should stand against. There are many things we need to stand against in modern America. Sex trafficking is something Christians should stand against. Okay? Abortion is something people should stand against. The most innocent among us, Christians should stand for. And if you don't think that that's an important cause, then you don't understand love from God's perspective. Because love does not stand idly by when injustice is done. You see, the problem is, is we've let love be redefined as some emotional feeling. It's more than just a feeling, folks. It's an action word. Loving somebody is more than just a feeling for them. It's doing something on their behalf. Love helps the needy without the expectation of returns. Love helps the needy without the expectation of returns. How many of you know people that really can't give you much back if you were to help them out? We know people like that. The question is, do we reach out to those people with an expectation of return, or do we love unconditionally knowing, you know, this person really probably can't offer us much back, if anything at all? You know, the, the, the homeless person that you meet, that you see that sign, that you and I go, oh, they're going to spend it on something we probably wouldn't spend it on. Let me give you a, a, a quick, brief thought on this that I want you to kind of think through for a second. Did God give you your money? Is it God's money ultimately? 
Can that person potentially squander it and use it on things they shouldn't? If it's God's money, don't you think he'll worry about it? I'm going to leave you to that one, okay? The reality is that sometimes people are going to use things that we would want, wouldn't want them to use it for. And you should have discernment. But you don't know the, the person that's standing on the corner where they really are in need or not. And for you to wait to make sure, you're not going to have that kind of time. There are times when you've wasted God's money, if you were to be honest. And if you were going to stand out there pontificating as if you've always been a great steward of the things God has given to you, I would suggest you repent this morning. Because we've all done it. We've all squandered the things God's given to us. I don't understand why we're so surprised when others squander the things we do for them. I don't get it. We're very inconsistent, shall we say. Love does not show up in order to receive something in return because it noticed a need. We don't need to be like our politicians wanting the credit for trying to solve society's problems. Let, let, me, let me be more practical. If we do something as a church for people in this community, okay? Let, I don't know how many of you remember uh, when the crossing guard lady got killed right here, the corner of the street. Our goal in helping out or being a blessing to them was not to get recognition, folks. Our goal was to just show the unconditional love of Christ to somebody that we knew was right here on our, on our, on our street corner. And we gave. Not because we wanted something in the paper written about us, but because we understood that that's showing Christ's love to them. And that's what God calls us to. It shouldn't be our goal to be liked more because we help someone in need. Love protects the most vulnerable. You should be eager to help those that are in need, realizing how needy you were before God. You see... You couldn't help yourself when it came to your relationship with God. I don't know why we look down at others that can't help themselves in certain situations. When you and I were completely hopeless apart from Christ. Completely. Do you see how if you start with anything but the gospel message, you're going to go off in all your tangents and all your excuses and all your reasons why you shouldn't help anybody? If you start with the gospel, for some reason the perspective changes. Does it not? It absolutely does. And the reason it changes is because you realize that you were that person before God. And when you realize that you were that person before God, it makes it a lot easier to see those in need that can't do anything for you back. And you go, you know what? God's been gracious to me even when I couldn't help or do anything for myself. I'm going to do the same thing for others. That's what love calls you to. And this is a love that's unconditional, that continually gives and it seems crazy to the world that Christians love this way, but this is what makes Christianity different than anything else on the planet. Is we have an unconditionally loving God that cared enough for us when we were hopeless and without Christ. God promises to protect orphans and widows, but he's called you and me to partner with him in that. We're not to neglect that ourselves, folks. Proverbs 17.15 says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Can I, can I stop for a second and comment on this text here? One of the things that I think is very detrimental in the church is when a believer 
A disciple, follower of Jesus, goes out of the way to help someone in need. And guess what another follower of Jesus decides to do? Mock them for doing that for the Lord. Let me tell you folks, God does not take that lightly. There's nothing more hurtful than a believer reaching out to someone in need and another believer goes, why are you doing that for them? Now, could there be better judgment used sometimes? Of course. I'm not arguing that we don't make mistakes in our discernment. I'm not arguing that whatsoever. What I am saying is, when someone is in need that can't give us anything in return, and we show them and extend them that grace and love, and another person steps alongside and starts questioning why we did that for somebody else, folks, maybe we need to take a real closer look at how the gospel message has affected our hearts if our response, by default, is to condemn somebody who's helping someone in need. In fact, James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Folks, I know it's about a relationship. The scripture talks about religion too. There should be a devotion to Christ. And pure religion, as this text says, is to visit those that are in need. That's what it looks like. Not the ones that are well off. The ones that are in need, folks. Micah 6 eight. This would be a great text to memorize it as a church. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You want a reminder of what it looks like to love God the way you ought to and others the way you ought to? This is a verse you should memorize. Because notice the verse says this, What does the Lord require of you? You mean to tell me the Lord has requirements for Israel and He has requirements for us? Sure does. But I think it's amazing that the very thing that He mentions right off the bat is to do what? To do justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with our God. Ravi Zacharias makes a point on this. He says, It is theoretically and practically impossible to build build any community apart from love and justice. If only one of these two is focused upon, an inevitable extremism and perversion follow. It's important, folks. And in case you don't know that I like Charles Spurgeon, we're going to quote him again. A church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, to fight evil, to destroy error, to put down falsehood. A church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, and to hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to be. Not for yourself, O church, do you exist any more than Christ existed for himself. I feel like Spurgeon just took a sledgehammer. <laughs> Maybe, folks, this is an area we need to pay attention a little more in as a church. We're going to talk about this a little bit more as we get into discipleship. Number 11, love is thrilled with the truth. Verse number 6, second half, does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. This is pretty much the opposite of the last one. We are broken over injustice, but thrilled with the truth. 
The tensions is all throughout Scripture when it comes to this. The world is a broken place, but where we find truth in God's Word, we can rejoice. Folks, is that not the case many times? We see how crazy and chaotic the world gets, and you just absolutely get depressed. I don't know about you, I just get depressed. I don't want to read another news article. I just, I don't, did you read this? No, I don't want to hear it. I already know it's terrible. I know what they're going to talk about again. They're not going to talk about the fact that certain people are giving and loving to others. They're going to talk about how someone killed somebody the other day again. And this is one of the reasons why you should be broken for those that are hurt and damaged by sin. And you should rejoice in the truth. Because the only way you can help those is if you're in the truth. There's a reason why Scripture contrasts certain things. You see, a lot of people are about fighting injustice, but they're not about fighting injustice through truth. They're about fighting injustice based on what they perceive as injustice. And that is why the truth matters. Love is excited by truth, not the falsehoods of society. Love is excited by truth, not the falsehoods of society. God's promises, His word, are what excite a person who lives out agape love. Let me ask you a personal question. What is it that excites you the most? What is it that excites you the most? Is it your family? The money you make? The people you know? The wonderful TV you have at home that you can't wait to watch the Patriots game on? Whatever it is. What is it that excites you and me? If it's anything outside the word of God, it will not have this lasting effect that agape love has. Because it rejoices in the truth. Bless you. One of the biggest things that I would really pray and strive for as a pastor long term in this church is for all of us to be as excited about the word as we are of the things right now that we are replacing it with. If we could have a church that was so excited and thrilled about the word that when we got together, the word is what we want to talk about, that's a church I know God would use big time. And I don't think I'd have to preach a ton of extra sermons on how to do certain things because the word would be in us and be lived out through us. Are we as excited about the word showing us our need for Christ as we are? of those wonderful things that people say about us? Or that encouraging statement from someone else? Do you care more what God says about you than others do? Or are you more waiting for that encouragement from someone else than the Word of God? Do you realize there's a lot of encouragement in Scripture that you and I miss out on because we're not in the Word? you realize that not only to Israel does God have these wonderful thoughts, He has those wonderful thoughts for you and me? Do you realize that there's a blessing in being the person that's in the Word? We have such a low image of ourselves because we are not seeing ourselves through God's lens many times. Love cherishes truth at the expense of a sentimental feeling. Love cherishes truth at the expense of a sentimental feeling. You see, truth as defined by God 
who is love, is more important than the catchy tune on the radio or the latest movie that moves and stirs our hearts. Agape love understands that though the world may make us feel okay for our sin, God knows better. The false feeling of acceptance and guilt-free living are discarded for the joy of knowing God with all the brokenness and hurt. It should not be your goal, believer, to run away as far as you can for those guilty feelings of why you decided to sin the way you did. Those guilty feelings are a flashing light for you to wake up in a warning. Love understands, at the end of the day, I cherish truth over a sentimental feeling. You see, love is way more than a feeling when it comes to agape love. And the problem with a lot of us is we are striving for the good feeling rather than truth. Now, does love have feelings attached with it? Of course it does. Christ felt, but he also stood on truth. It's very difficult for us to have, if, how could I say this properly, God-honoring feelings when we have the world influencing our feelings all the time. That latest hit song that stirs us up, that has nothing to do with Scripture, is completely pagan, and yet we're so moved by it, that like a simple worship song doesn't even do that for us for some reason. Maybe something's off in our Christianity when the world gets our attention and our feelings faster than God's Word does. Maybe something's off in our walk with God when we're more excited about certain things that we no longer feel guilty about because the world tolerates them as okay, but God's Word calls us out for it. Love doesn't care for the guilty feeling ultimately as a way out. It doesn't care for the guilty feeling as a way out. It's there because it wants truth. How many of us feel guilty when we've done wrong? We should. Love cares more for the truth than for us to feel better. Because let me tell you folks, when God restores you and me, there's a greater feeling that you'll experience than if you just walked away and decided to ignore what you went through. Remember when David sinned against God? And he makes this statement, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's a lot of Christians that don't live in that kind of joy. The reason we're walking around defeated is we have these plastic faces where we look so good to everybody else. And we pretend everything's fine in our homes. There's, everything's great with our kids. Everything's great with our spouse. Everything's great with our coworkers. And it's not. Why? Because we want to swap the guilty feeling for something that looks a little more sentimentally appeasing. Folks, we need to get to the truth because that's where love originates. 
from God himself, who is truth, who tells us his word is truth. God defines love. We need to go to him for the answer. Love gladly stands up for truth under fierce opposition. Agape love stands for truth as defined by God himself in his word. The disciple of Christ unconditionally seeks the good of others in truth because Christ unconditionally sought their good. Love is willing to lay down their life for others as Christ has laid their, his life down for them. I always think of the hymn from Martin Luther, though I have a lot of things I can't stand that Martin Luther said. The hymn resounds solidly with this phrase, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Psalm 1, 1 through 2 says this, the Amplified Version says, Blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, following their advice and example, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit down to rest in the seat of scoffers or ridiculers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, his precepts and teaching, he habitually meditates day and night. Erwin Lutzer says the following, says, To make sure our convictions, views, and, op- and assumptions about our creation stay based on biblical truth and not popular consensus, we must continually check what we believe against the scriptures. Here's something dangerous, folks. You're going to be very skewed in your perception of Jesus and God and all the things that he calls you to do if you haven't been in the Word. You're going to assume that everything that you used to believe is still fine today when you have very, may very well have strayed quite a bit. How many of you know when you have a car, you need to realign it when you have to change your tires out? Anybody know that? They have to do an alignment, right? Because what ends up happening? takes off. That's a lot of Christians. We need realignment. If you go off on your own, keep doing all the things you need to do, you need a realignment, and that realignment is God's Word. It's not the opinion of a famous author you want to read. The realignment comes from God's Word itself. Here's one I'm a little scared to read because I tend to agree with J.C. Ryle 100% on this one. To maintain pure truth in the church, we should be ready to make any sacrifice to hazard peace, to risk dissension, and run the chance of division. It's not a sentimental feeling, is it, J.C. Ryle? No warm thoughts here. You mean to tell me God has called us to divide truth from error? Yeah. You mean love rejoices in truth? Yes. Then why are so many Christians tolerating injustice and falsehood?
Look, if it's apart from what God's word says, you need to stay away from it and oppose it. Doesn't matter if you are standing with just a few people next to you. I believe discipleship is so important for the church that I'm staking my whole ministry on it long term. And I've been praying specifically for God to raise faithful men and women in this church that take that seriously enough to where God uses them to reach people I can't reach. Truth matters, folks. It's not about you or me. God's truth is what matters. Number 12. Love suppresses others' flaws. Look at verse number 7. Bears all things. The idea of the word bears is one of covering closely or shielding. Covering closely or shielding. Love being wrong does not eagerly wait an announcement of that wrong. There have been many a disciple of Christ who have been wrong who did not run to announce their feet, who did not wait to announce their being wrong to someone else right away. Love knows the frailty of others and that each one of us at the wrong time can respond in the wrong way. Those that have shown this divine love know how much God himself has shielded them from exposure and public humiliation for their wrongings against him in secret. Could you imagine if God publicly humiliated all of us for all the wrong we've done in secret against him? Do you imagine if there was a screen with all the things you did this last week against him for all to see? You mean to tell me God unconditionally loves us? Yeah. That amazing. That kind of love. There are times that things must be exposed so as to make sure justice is done. But most of the times we have petty things we're bringing up to others that have been done to us. We don't understand agape love many times. We let the petty things destroy us. Love seeks support rather than exposure for the one in sin. Love seeks support rather than exposure for the one in sin. Bearing up someone rather than simply exposing them is the key to this kind of love. This is not doormat theology, but rather a love that cares for the other to want them to have support or help rather than simply being outed for their wrong. There are times people need to be exposed for what they've done. But the goal is not there just to make a pronouncement to everybody and just shame people. The goal is for restoration, to support and help that person. And many times it gets to extreme forms if the person continually doesn't listen. We're going to talk about that in a second here. Can I just practically and personally thank many of you that I have wronged, that have not gone out of their way to go tell everybody about how terrible Pastor Roman was to you that day? I just want to personally thank you for that. You've exhibited this kind of love. I hope and pray we become more of this kind of church. 
a church that loves people the way that we ought to, in the sense that when we've been wronged, we're not quickly running to announce it. But we're willing to bear on that person's behalf. You realize how much God puts up with you every day? I mean, you wake up in the morning and then you kind of go through three, four hours of your day already. Do you think God's already put up with enough of you already? I'm sure. Some of us in the first ten minutes. We've already cursed somebody out as soon as we walked, drove out of our driveway. It didn't even take us an hour. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this, We earnestly urge you, believers, admonish those who are out of line, the undisciplined, the unruly, the disorderly. Encourage the timid who lack spiritual courage. Help the spiritually weak. Be very patient with everyone. Always controlling your temper. Ah, A lot of practicality in the Word of God. Proverbs 19.11 is probably my favorite verse that I've looked up when I was preparing for this sermon. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. You know people like that? It's just very hard to offend them. Like you really have to try hard to really offend them. They don't get set off easily. It takes a quite, a quite a, how can I say this, a long fuse to finally, for them to blow. Like they, 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 they really don't have the short fuse that you and I do. They have something that really endures for a long time and then they finally, you know, there comes a point, but it takes forever almost. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Folks, maybe the reason those people are different is they understand this part of love right here. The whole point of Matthew 18 is if someone did something against you, you go tell them first alone. We don't need to broadcast it to others. Did you see what they said on Facebook? They didn't even respond to my post. Oh, no, that never happens in our church, I'm sure. Never. Some other church, if you're watching live stream. Never happens at Sovereign Grace. I'm joking, we are guilty. Uh, four steps of resolving conflict offense between ourselves and others. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Number one, you tell them privately about the wrong committed. Somebody does something against you? Someone offends you over something? You tell them privately. Number two, they don't listen, take a few others with you to make sure there's a better understanding. This is a Roman paraphrase, okay, just FYI. Take a few others with you. Hopefully they'll hear them out. If you, they didn't hear you clearly the first time. Number three. If they don't listen to you and a few others, bring it to the congregation. At that point, you share with the congregation. And number four. If that still doesn't get their attention, separate from that person for the purpose of possible reconciliation later. The goal is always restoration, folks. The goal is not ostracization, restoration. Okay? The goal is not to cut off permanently, that's it. The goal is to possibly restore that person one day. You see that throughout the book, the book of Corinthians, first and second. This, 
the struggle that the church had with this. The problem is we go to step three, tell the church before we ever speak to the person. Is that not messed up? We've done something wrong against somebody, we didn't even know about it, and someone else told us. Anybody ever have that happen? Not here, right? Never. Like, we find out from everyone else. I didn't even know I ticked them off. Had no clue. Oh, five other people already heard about this. Folks, come on, we can do better than that. We can go to people. Talk to them directly. We have a lot of work to do here. Some of us have people we should talk to about the wrong they've done us, but we're just too afraid to do that. And here's an area that I'm not too comfortable sharing, but I want to make sure that if you're the one that's done wrong to somebody, you you pay attention here. Okay? This is to you specifically, because we all do this sometimes. Some of us are terrible people to talk to when we've wronged others, because we tend to do one of the following. Number one, we excuse what we've done. We blame the other person, our bad day, whatever happened at work. Folks, we need to be honest enough to own what we've done wrong. Last time I checked, you don't have a halo and you're not perfect yet. You still wrong people. Let me surprise you, you're going to wrong somebody again this next week. Shocker. Oh my goodness. No way. Falsely promise to do better the next time. Never ending cycle. There, there are people that respond this way. They're the perpetual, I'll do better. I'm sorry, but this one gets on the nerves on the most out of these three that I'm going to talk about. I can't stand people that tell me I'm going to do better and I see no improvement in them. And then I realize I do the same thing. I have a lot of areas I need to improve and I'm not. Folks, this is one of the reasons why you need the Word of God. You need the Word in you so you can then have the Word lived out properly. So you respond in grace rather than condemnation to everybody else. Everybody else is the terrible sinner. I'm the perfect saint. Newsflash. You're not. Jesus is perfect. You're not. Number three. These are, these are people that are hard to deal with. When they've wronged others, they get angry and lash out or withdraw. Maybe even both. After we lash out, we withdraw from that person and others. Folks, if you're confronted over something you've done, be willing to own it. Don't be one of these three responses that constantly are part of the church. Have some humility. Get over yourself and your pride. I don't care how many years you've been a Christian. If they knew what my week was like, God knows. He still doesn't offer you the excuse. It's not like, you know, when you come to Him and ask for forgiveness, yeah, I understand. You had a bad day. I get it. Perfectly fine. No consequences for your terrible choice. Does God understand who we are? Of course he does. Are there still consequences for bad choices? Yes, there are. 
Look, trust can be broken, folks. I'm not talking about the fact that certain times trust needs to be rebuilt between people. I'm talking about the fact that you have a simple thing that happened between you and somebody else, and you never told them about it. And when you do finally tell that person, that person responds in defense posturing every time. Can we as a church get over ourselves in this? Can we get over our pride and be willing to own when we screw up? I don't enjoy any more than the next guy eating humble pie from people. I don't get up every morning going, you know, I can't wait to hear a critique today. I can't wait for someone to call me out. Bring it on. That's not how it works. So many of us are so tough online that we wouldn't say in person what we say online to others. Oh, we're, we're, we're Facebook warriors, man. We will destroy you. Here's another article. Post. You're wrong. And let me tell you the ten reasons you are. And it's by an author you like, so I'm going to prove you wrong now. Is that gracious? Humble? No. We all have areas to repent of when it comes to this understanding of love and supporting or protecting, as NIV puts it, others rather than exposing them. Your goal is to protect people, not to expose them. You see, it's beyond just saying you and I are human. It's owning sin for what it is. Stop giving yourself a pass because someone else did something wrong too. God is not going to judge you ultimately on what someone did to you. He's going to judge you on your response to what they did. He will deal with them for what they've done wrong. And you need to be honest enough to admit what you've done wrong on your end if you did anything at all. So in conclusion... Which of these three descriptions of love do you struggle most in living out? Number one, being broken by injustice. Number two, being thrilled with the truth. Does the word of God just not excite you all that much? Number three, suppressing others' flaws. You just can't wait to expose the person that did something to you. You just can't wait to let others know how they did you wrong. I would argue that if the word, the truth, is in us, we would do better in all three of these. You see, if the word and the truth is important to us, and we know that love rejoices in the truth, I would argue that everything else in this chapter, we would improve on. Because if we're rejoicing in the truth, we're going to suppress others' wrongs. We're not going to be looking to condemn everybody. We're going to look for injustice based on God's word. We're not going to respond in pride as we've already discussed. We're going to be patient with others that we've already talked about as well. And number two, what are you going to do by God's spirit differently? Look, get beyond admitting you're a human and you struggle and get out of that way of thinking and do something about it. Get over your pathetic self-pity and fight the sin nature that's in you.
Got a quote by Lloyd-Jones here that I paused and reread probably three times before I decided to include this in my sermon. Because most of us would admit that the church is like a hospital. But, but Lloyd-Jones is not denying that fact. He's actually trying to get us to think a little more deeper. Notice what he says here. He says, the main trouble with the Christian church today is that she is too much like a clinic, too much like a hospital. That is why the great world is going to hell outside. Look at the great campaign. Look at it objectively. Look at it from God's standpoint. Forget yourself and your temporary troubles and ills for the moment. Fight in the army. It's not a clinic you need. You must realize that we are in the barracks and that we are involved in a mighty campaign. And I just stopped and said, Lloyd-Jones, you're right on. Self-pity needs to stop, folks. No excuses. A soldier's in it to win, not to quit. God wants those kind of soldiers in his army, not the ones that constantly need to be tended to and never want to get up to fight again. Get back up and fight, believer. That's what God's called you to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder from your word. We thank you for this love that you've show, so richly shown to us. Father, we thank you for the gift of eternal life that we take for granted. Father, we ask that you give us boldness that you would give us this love that rejoices in truth, that we would be willing to stand against injustice and be willing to overlook the flaws of others in order for restoration to take place. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.